Well, good morning. It's so good to be with all of you today. Thank you for waking up early. Thanks for making Peachtree and your spiritual lives a key component of what we get to do together and the great mission that God has entrusted to us. So excited for us to be continuing our journey through the quest of God's holy word, and we get to some difficult portions of God's word over the course of these next couple of weeks. Let me give you the roadmap for where we are. We've been talking about God's promise throughout the book of Genesis, and then and through the rest of the first five books of the Bible with the quest for freedom. And we started last week and turning our direction towards God's people settling in at home in the promised land. And last week we looked at the book of Joshua, and this week we are dipping our toes into the book of Judges. And so we're going to be entering into the bloodiest, most confusing, most chaotic, most difficult part of the Bible. Who's excited? In fact, there was a church that I found that did this with their artwork. When they were talking about the book of Judges, they themed it as the Game of Thrones. Because this is a time where rulers rise and fall and you will be shocked by what happens. And today in this message, this will be absolutely no exception to it. If you're looking for a resource to help you to kind of disentangle the book of Judges and the mystery that it is, I highly recommend this resource by Tim Keller. Usually Old Testament commentaries are very dry and difficult to read. A book called Judges for You by Tim Keller is a great way if you're looking for a deeper resource for how to help to understand the book of Judges and several of the insights that I'm going to share with you this morning come from Tim's reflections on it. And so as we get ready to enter into the book of Judges, there are all kinds of different things that we're going to need to understand because the book of Judges is going to challenge your devotional life. Most of the time when we read the Bible, we know who the heroes are, we know who the villains are. Most of the time, like when we read of Jesus healing somebody, we don't have to wonder as to Jesus' motive as to why he healed that person or why that miracle happened. But as you enter through all of the conflicts that are the book of Judges, it's, it's one of those things where you're going to finish your reading and you're going to be like, why on earth is this in the Bible? Why am I reading this? It feels like not reading any other portion of the Bible. So I'm going to summarize some things that Tim Keller says here. Uh, He has a longer list of why kind of experiencing the book of Judges. The first is, is that God is in charge even when it doesn't look like it. And so part of entering into the chaos of the book of Judges is getting to realize that when your life is chaotic, God is still sovereign. Secondly, that God relentlessly offers his grace to people who don't deserve it, or seek it, or even appreciate it, even after they've been saved by it. Because you're going to see over and over again in the cycle that God rescues his people, raises up a leader again, and yet they don't even appreciate it, and certainly don't deserve what the grace that they continue to get over and over again. Thirdly, that God wants the lordship of our whole lives and not just some of it. And what we're going to see this morning is what is the product of half-hearted discipleship. And then finally, We are continually in need of spiritual renewal. And so while it might be the kind of thing that we would attempt to distance ourselves from a barbaric and difficult portion of the Bible to read, one of the things that we recognize is that just the same as those people back then 
We need spiritual renewal today, just as they did. Now, the book of Judges is primarily about warfare. And it's about warfare that is very different from warfare of what we see today. The book of Judges is about 3,500 years old in terms of the history of what happened in it. And when we go through the journey of what's about to happen at this part of the story, we recognize that in the broadest strokes that God calls Abraham from a home all the way to enter into a new place and promises that God is going to bless Abraham there and that his descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And sure enough, Abraham brings his family to the promised land and they start to flourish. And yet there is a famine in the land and Abraham and his family have to make their way through the descendants of Abraham during the time of Joseph all the way to Egypt. And in the most surprising of ways, God rescues his people by pulling them out of the promised land and into Egypt. But they don't go back into the promised land when the famine is over. They end up staying in Egypt because they have been enslaved. And so for 400 years, they are enslaved in Egypt. And yet God rescues them and hears their cries. And they spend a whole generation wandering in the wilderness. And after spending all that time wandering in the wilderness, God finally brings them back into the repossession of the promised land. And so what happens in the book of Judges, I'm sorry, Joshua, is that we see the conquest of the land, and yet in the book of Judges, we see them attempt to try to stay in the land. And so the book of Joshua is the offensive to retake what was originally their homeland. And in the book of Judges, what we see is them trying to maintain their position in the promised land. And as they enter into that promised land, one of the things that we discover is that this is not conventional warfare. 3,500 years ago, there was a way to do war. And what God tells the Israelites to do is very different from any kind of warfare that anybody has known back then. This is what God instructs them to do. That they're to completely to drive out their enemies. That they're to not take any slaves. That they're not to marry their daughters. That they're to tear down the altars to idols and to don't take any livestock. What is shocking about this, if you were to enter into the time and history of so many thousands of years ago is, in other words, you see things like slavery and not marrying uh, the people in terms of taking on their daughters once you've conquered them and not taking the livestock. This was not about financial gain. This was not about increasing the size of your family or your influence. This was about God trying to get them to be in a place where they could become his people and from there the whole world would be blessed. This was not going to be conventional warfare. God was going to use them in an entirely different form. And so what we're going to experience as we go through the book of Judges, as I try to equip you, is that there's a huge difference between the people's perception of what they're doing and God's perception of what they're doing. The people's perception is according to Judges chapter 1 in the beginning, as they begin to do what God has called them to do. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were, and what's the word there? Unable to drive out the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. In other words, they had better technology, and so we couldn't do it. 
And yet when you look in Judges chapter 2, what God's perspective of what's going on, God said, I will never break my covenant you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, which is exactly what they do, but you shall break down their altars, yet you have disobeyed me. In other words, the people's perception was, we couldn't do it. And God's perception was, you were unwilling to do it. Can you think of parts of your life where there's a chasm between what you're willing to do and what you're able to do and what you're obedient to do? What if God calls you to forgive somebody and you say, I can't do it? Is it really can't or is it won't? What if God calls you to love someone, even in difficult circumstances, and you say, I can't do it? Or won't you do it? Maybe there's a temptation, an addiction, something that you need to face, and you're like, I can't do it. Sometimes that's your perspective, but the heavenly perspective is you won't do it. And so what we see in the book of Judges is half-hearted obedience, a partial devotion, where God instructs them to do something, and they do it up to a point. But they don't go all the way. And so there's a pattern in the book of Judges. And in fact, if you go to chapter 2 and you look at what happens in chapter 2, it gives you kind of the foreshadowing of what God is trying to provide for his people in being able to instruct them of how this pattern is going to play out over time. And so I want to show with you what I think are kind of the thesis verses of Judges chapter 2, starting in the 10th verse. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals, which was the primary Canaanite god. For they forsook the Lord and the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. What you see over and over again here is the language of they no longer knew the Lord. This doesn't mean that they intellectually knew the Lord. It means that they no longer relationally knew the Lord that they forsook the Lord, that they neglected the Lord, that they served other gods. And so over and over again, what the phrase that repeats in the book of Judges is, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, or they did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, they were not unable, they were unwilling to do what God instructed them to do. So Tim Keller describes it this way. He says, commitment is replaced by complacency and then by compromise. And can you think of any aspect of your life or our society where once once what started out as commitment becomes complacency and then compromise? As you're reading this part of the Old Testament, There's a part of you that is bound to be uncomfortable with the anger of the Lord. 
want to introduce you to the wonderful work of a theologian by the name of Miroslav Volf, who grew up in what is known as the former nation of Yugoslavia. And during his childhood, over three million people were displaced or became refugees during his childhood. He was one of those who ended up in the United States and eventually getting his doctorate and now is a professor at Yale Divinity School. He specializes in the ministry of reconciliation. And he says this, though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. My friends, when God looks at the world today and he looks at the horror and the atrocities of what's happening in Ukraine, you need to know that God is angry and that that anger comes from his love. That God is slow to anger and he is abounding in love. The Old Testament word for anger is the word for nostrils. In other words, as God looks at the world today and sees the injustice and the horror and the atrocities of what's happening in the world, out of the overflow of his love, God looks at the brokenness of our humanity and our disobedience, and he is angry. And I, for one, could not worship a God who did not get angry when we tear apart God's creation in this way. And so with all of that as backstory, turn with me in your Bibles to Judges chapter 4. Are you ready to read in the book of Judges? I know you were excited. Judges chapter 4, we're going to start reading in the first verse. We're going to read the first 22 verses of Judges chapter 4. Trying to give you lots of help and tools for reading Judges this week. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. There's that phrase again. And now that Ehud, who was the former judge, the former ruler, was dead. And so the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harosheth Hagoim. Say that, Harosheth Hagoim. You don't really need to say that. I just wanted to watch you try to say it. Because the Lord, he had, because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for how long? 20 years. We blow right by these passages as you kind of keep reading it as backstory. This was 20 years of oppression against God's people. They cried out to the Lord for help. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. Pause right there and don't miss that. This is International Women's Month. Here we have 3,500 years ago, a woman who's a prophet who is leading God's people. 
Israel is a theocracy, and she is leading God's people, and what you're about to see as a judge, she leads people by with the wisdom and the discernment of doing this. I think this is a great and ancient example of God using the most unlikely of situations and people to bring about his purposes. In a patriarchal world 3,500 years ago, this would have been shocking to have seen a woman leader. And in spite of the context of the Bible, throughout Old Testament and New Testament times, we see beautiful examples of women leading in the Bible. As a friend of mine says, women were the last to leave the cross, and they were the first at the tomb. And we ought to celebrate those moments where Women are used in faithful ways like this. Let's continue. Now, Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at the time, and she held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her and have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, and from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you 10,000 men from Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, and with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go, but if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah, but because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. And so Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh, and there Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command, and Deborah also went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites and the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Za'anim near Kadesh. And when they, came, when they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Harosheth Hagoim to the Kishon River all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. Pause right there. 900 chariots fitted with iron. This is going to be a slaughter. And yet that's not what happens. In spite of the technological advance, God's people are going to win. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? And so Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harosheth Hagoim and all his Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Hebor, the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Hebor, the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in, don't be afraid. And so this commander of the enemy army entered her tent and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him up. Standing in the doorway of the tent, he told her, if someone comes by and asks you, is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he was fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the pent 
the, the peg through his temple and into the ground, and he died. Anybody have any questions? I mean, is this the kind of passage that you read devotionally and you're like, I'm so inspired, I am ready to go to work and to face my day? But don't miss this. It keeps repeating over and over again that Jael, this woman who's not an Israelite, is a Kenite, K-E-N-I-T-E. The Kenites are the descendants of Cain, of Cain and Abel. So Cain and Abel, from the first murder in the Bible, traces now through the lineage here, you have a descendant of Cain that God uses to rescue his people. Women were the ones who set up the tents in the ancient world. And so they had the tools of making the home. And Jael uses those terms in order to liberate the people from 20 years of oppression, of a community of people who participated in child sacrifice and temple prostitution and all kinds of unspeakable horrors inflicted upon the people. And God uses the most unlikely person, a descendant of Cain, the most unlikely category of person to be a rescuer, a woman. And Deborah and Jael are the heroes of the story. It's a messy, difficult, complicated, bloody part of our history. And the question is, do we trust God to work in all of the situations of our lives? or just the ones that we anticipate. What if I were to enter into the most complicated and difficult parts of your story? Would God be at work there or just in the Instagram highlight reel of your life? As we look at today, and we go to the news and the images of what's happening in the world. Do we believe that God is at work even in the midst of the horror, of the violence, and the atrocities committed against the people of Ukraine? I think if you look closely, you will notice in the news lines of people waiting outside in order to donate blood in Ukraine. You will see an 80-year-old man in Ukraine who's attempting right in this moment to enlist in the army. And when asked why, he said it's because he wants to protect his grandson. Or a comedian turned into valiant leader who refuses to leave even though he's granted amnesty. 
because he's called to stay with his people, to be faithful to them. I firmly believe that even in the bloodiest, most violent, most difficult of situations, God is there. There's an author by the name of Barbara Brown Taylor who tells of a time when she had some vacation and she got an opportunity to go volunteer as a helper on a barrier island to be able to draw near to one of the more remarkable events that happens in nature. It's a moment of the loggerhead turtles as they come to the shore to be able to, to lay their eggs and then to go back into the waters. Sometimes it requires assistance to make sure that the turtle eggs are protected. These incredible, old, magnificent creatures. On this one particular occasion, she was there as she's noticed a woman labor up onto the shore and to, to lay her eggs, and she noticed tears streaming down the turtle's face. And yet after the laying of the eggs, she noticed the next morning as she went to go look for the turtle that the turtle was gone. She was hoping that the turtle had turned around and gone back into the ocean, but somewhere in the confusion, the turtle had gone in the opposite direction from where the ocean was. And so she found this massive turtle that had walked and labored in the wrong direction, and now the sand was as hot as asphalt, and the, the turtle was completely dried and was in the process of dying. She went over to the turtle, and she, she poured seawater on the turtle in an attempt to, to help to revive it, but she could tell that the turtle was in trouble. And so she went and she got to a park ranger, and as she got to a park ranger, the park ranger came over and took chains and tied it around the, the front two legs of the turtle and was able to flip the turtle over and to tie those chains to the front of the jeep, and the jeep pulled the turtle all the way down to the ocean, and the water was now spraying back into the face of the turtle, and the turtle started to, to come out of her shell and dazed from being pulled along the sand and bumped and up and down and turned every which way. And now the turtle started to begin to go into the water and once again to swim in the beauty of the ocean in which the turtles are called to live. After watching this violent, disruptive, beautiful, and chaotic escapade. Barbara Brown Taylor wrote this. Watching her swim slowly away and remembering her nightmare ride through the dunes, I noticed that there is sometimes hard to tell whether you are being killed or being saved by the hands that turn your life upside down. My friends, that's the book of Judges. And if we're honest, that's all of our lives. That there are moments where you're going to be turned upside down, flipped inside out, dragged, beauty, heat, creation, life. And yet God 
is at work in the midst of all of it. You're probably not going to find devotional little nuggets to inspire your soul in the book of Judges. What you'll see is half-hearted devotion and a really faithful God. And in spite of us, that's exactly what we need. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for this magnificent portion of your word that confuses us and yet at the same time enables us to see that you are truly at work and that there's no extent, even in the evil and the brokenness and half-heartedness of our partial devotion, that you were not there. Forgive us, God, for like the Israelites of long ago, that we turn our backs on you, that we do evil in your eyes, that we forsake you and serve other gods. We thank you, God, that this arouses your anger and that your commitment to us is steadfast even in those moments. Today, will you use the most unlikely of people, the most unexpected of descendants, to be able to raise up new leaders and to renew our commitment to you. Thank you, God, that you work through the gift of humility and that it's amazing what can get done if we don't care about who gets the credit. And so, God, in the midst of a disobedient generation, help us now to tear down the altars to the false gods and to come and to worship you, our one true king. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.